um, this, um, this talk began, it was actually a tutor talk at first, and it began one day when I was sitting there with nothing else to do, thinking about some of the puzzles that um, had come up in teaching Euclid. Um, I was fortunate to teach Euclid, not right away, I had to do senior math for a few years, um, but in the 90s, I think, early 90s, I taught a couple of years Euclid, and then I was fortunate enough to be a tutor for the Euclid tutorial my last two years before I retired. So I, I really love Euclid, I love what's there. Um, but I, I remember how I, as I started out, and most of the students, I think, were really puzzled when we got to the number books. Uh, we thought we had a pretty good handle on what Euclid was doing and how he was doing it. For me, it was, there was a learning curve there. I, my education in mathematics was much more modern for the most part, although I'm old enough that I actually did Euclidean geometry in uh, high school. But after that, it was pretty modern. Um, so I had to get used to Euclid's style. Uh, but I think I and the others were pretty comfortable by the time we got to the end of book six. And then Euclid threw us a curveball, so to speak. Here were these number books. What was going on with them? Uh, why were they there? Um, why did he represent numbers as lines? Why were the books ordered the way they were? It seemed a little strange that he'd start out with propositions, uh, the propositions that he did. Um, so it seemed to me it would be kind of interesting and fun to sit down and think about how to answer, at least to suggest answers to some of these puzzles that we had. So that's what I'd like to talk with you about today. And I hope you have a handout because there are a couple of places where you're probably going to need it. <clears throat> okay, first let me, uh, as I begin part one, which is called the representation of numbers by lines, I want to note that when I say line, I'm going to mean a straight line unless I say otherwise, okay, just to keep it simple. <clears throat> I remember many times my much beloved colleague and friend, Molly Gustin, would say that numbers are lines. Despite the fact that we disagreed about this, I can understand why she said it. I think uh, she was influenced both by Euclid's way of depicting numbers and by Descartes' extension of arithmetical concepts into geometry. Uh, in defense of her notion, we want to remember that it's a commonplace to speak of the Cartesian number line as if something that comprises all the real numbers. Uh, so to be fair, I think that Mrs. Gustin was trying to give an account that made sense of calling the real numbers numbers. But if the whole numbers, those which Euclid was concerned with, are also real numbers, the temptation is there to state in the categorical way that numbers are lines. I think the identification of real numbers as lines is a mistake, but my concern here is not with that, but with how to interpret Euclid. Uh, whatever numbers were for Euclid, they were not lines. In fact, if you want to ask me about this later, found some indication that for some Platonists, is you turn it around and say the other way around that uh, lines are numbers, <laughs> which is an odd thought. <clears throat> okay. So, since Euclid defines number as a multitude of units, one need only look at his definition of unit to see what he understands numbers to be. His definition is broad, to say the least. He says that, quote, a unit is that by virtue of which each of the things that exist is called one, unquote. Thus, we see we can speak of one line, one sphere, one point, one cow, one thought, whatever, all right? So, the unit is something common to them all. He doesn't make clear what this common thing is, probably because he thought it was enough for the mathematician to see that the unit is the principle of number and that it has, it has some existence apart from its concrete or geometrical manifestations. 
the determining of the exact nature of its existence, that is the existence of number, belongs to a higher science than mathematics, so I'm not going to try to resolve that today. In my opinion, then, Euclid's use of lines to represent numerable things does not imply a thesis about the nature of number. What remains, then, is to explain why lines are suitable and, in fact, the best way for him to represent numbers. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. Why use lines to represent numbers? Then we'll go on from there to look at why put arithmetic in, in the book of geometry in, at all. Um, at least two other methods for depicting numbers were available to Euclid that were kind of in the tradition of mathematics at the time. One was the use of numerals. This method was used by Nicomachus in his introduction to arithmetic. In uh, a classic work on the history of Greek mathematics by, Tom, by Heath, Thomas Heath, he compares Nicomachus's method to Euclid's, and he says that the method of representing numbers by lines, quote, has the advantage that, as an algebraical notation, we can work with numbers in general without the necessity of giving them specific values. In Nicomachus, numbers are no longer denoted by straight lines, so that when different undetermined numbers have to be distinguished, this has to be done by circumlocution, which makes the propositions cumbrous and hard to follow. And it is necessary after each proposition has been stated to illustrate it by examples in specific numbers. Further, says Heath, there are no longer any proofs in the proper sense of the word, unquote. That seems to be the most important point. Um, and I want to illustrate this by looking at a, an example. So if you look at your handout, uh, we're going to take a, a quick look at um, Book 7, Proposition 1. Here is how Euclid expresses it. Then we'll think about how you would do it Nicom uh, by using uh, definite numbers. So Euclid says, two unequal numbers being set out, the lesser being continually subtracted from the greater, if the number which is left never measures the one before it until the unit is left, the original numbers are prime to one another. Okay, so that's the proposition. Following the enunciation comes the setting out, as Proclus calls it, and that is, for the less of two e unequal numbers A, B, and C, D, being continually subtracted from the greater, let the number which is left over never measure the one before it until a unit is left, unquote. So if you look at the diagram, A, B, and C, D um, are those two numbers, C, D being the lesser. Um, they, those are the two numbers being measured. Uh, G is supposed as a common measure, and A, H is the unit. Now, we'll note that it's Euclid's practice to letter both endpoints of a line as well as its points of division, assuming that the number it represents needs to be measured. If a number does not need to be measured, he usually names it with a single letter, so that's G. Uh, so the proof, then, is carried out by using these letters as stand-ins for the numbers and their parts. We don't have to worry so much about the proof, but just kind of see how he does it. He uses those lines to represent the numbers. The ones that are to be measured are divided and then the, the common measure is shown as a single line. If Euclid had recourse only to determinate numbers, the setting out would have to look something like this. For the lesser of two numbers, for example, 5, being continually subtracted from the greater, for example, 93, let the number left, uh, left never measure the one before it until the unit is left. If that's true, then 5 and 93 are prime to one another. The supposed proof would be a calculation, right? So you say 5 times 18 equals 90. So with 5 subtracted from 93, 18 times we have 3 left. Now 3 subtracted from 5 leaves 2, and 2 subtracted from 3 
is one. Since, so that takes us down to the unit and proves that five and 93 are primed to one another. Since following the subtracting algorithm leads me to the unit before I find a common measure, I know there's no other common measure. But how do I prove this? I can go through all the numbers up to five to see if they all also go evenly into 93. But when I see that none of them do, what will I have learned? Only something particular to these two numbers. The only alternative is to suppose some indeterminate common measure other than the unit, give it a name, such as G, and work out a proof like Euclid's, in which thinking of the original numbers as particular examples is pointless. In fact, it's distracting. So it's pretty clear that that's not a good way to do proofs, the way that, uh, that Nicomachus did. So it's uh, tempting to simply write off argument by means of examples as unscientific, if not impossible. Nevertheless, we ought to think about how it differs from what Euclid does in proving geometrical theorems. Some concrete representation of the thing to be proved needs to be present to the imagination, and whatever's in the imagination is singular. Does that make sense? We only know through our senses. We have to use our imagination, and what's in our imagination is not universal. It's singular, particular. So to prove a theorem about triangles, Euclid must give us a particular triangle with determinate sides and angles so that we have something to look at and to imagine. So, okay, so how is this like, unlike the numerical example, right? So in, in the Euclidean proof, you have a, a representation of a definite triangle. Um, and in the example I tried to go through in a crazy way with 93 and 5, you have particular numbers to look at. What's, what's the difference? In a geometrical proof, it's not difficult to look at a concrete individual and intend only to the features that are relevant to the argument. For example, in looking at the drawing of a triangle for the purpose of proving book one, prop five, that the base angles of an isosceles triangle are equal, we need to imagine that there are two equal and one unequal side of which, let's see, and we, we need to see uh, that there are two equal and one unequal side, and which are the base angles, but we don't need to attend to the relative length of the unequal and equal sides. It's easy to see that these details do not enter into the argument. We can even see that the proof works if all three sides happen to be equal. The abstraction of the relevant to the irrelevant, in other words, is easy to do in geometry. But there's something in the way in which concrete numbers exist in our imagination that gets in the way of performing the necessary mental trick. And I think this has to do with the mode in which they are defined in comparison to the way in which you define geometrical figures. Um, so that's what I'd like to talk about now. How, how, are the, how are the definitions of numbers different from those of geometrical figures? Um, to see why the modes of definition are different in arithmetic and geometry, consider how the infinite exists in each. In magnitude, we have the infinity of infinite divisibility. As such, the infinite has no relevance to the definition of figures, having to do only with the material aspect, that is, with the continuum, the plane, let's say, in which the figures exist. The formal features of, of, the, uh, of the figures arise from the shape, right? This is a square, triangle, circle, whatever. Geometrical figures are defined by their boundaries, and all their properties flow from the nature of these boundaries. Even in theorems having to do with areas and volumes, where the properties are, are, that result from their forms are harder to know, it's by considering the implication of their boundaries that we learn what we can. 
And this is true even in the use of calculus, I believe. That um, <coughs> okay. It's quite otherwise with numbers. Numbers are infinite by addition, growing ever greater as we count them. Having no position, they have no boundaries. One might even say that a given number is a boundary. That is, a number terminates a progression radiating outward from the unit. That's a bit of platonic language, but that's one way to think of it. Um, think of the numbers as radiating from the unit. Um, so, um, whatever is formal in a given number comes from the nature of this boundary, which it is, which gives it gives rise to it, rise to a distinctive way in which it is a multitude. Remember, a number is a multitude of units. So, if two numbers are different, they have to be different in the way in which they are multitudes, right? <clears throat> so, it follows that unlike magnitudes, which are defined by way of genus and difference, the numbers have to have a somewhat different kind of definition. And let me explain what I mean by that. Suppose I want to define the number four. Um, I hope it's clear that, but when I say four, I, I'm speaking of a, not an individual four, but the species, of the number itself four. <clears throat> it's true, but not altogether helpful to say that four is four one, since it begs the question, right? Rather, four must be defined as the number that comes next after three, as that number in which a unit is added to three. This may sound like a purely nominal definition, but it's more than that, I think. The nature of any number depends on the nature of the number before it, going all the way back then to the unit. All the previous numbers are in it as a sort of potency to the next number, which is brought into act by the joining of another unit. This act of joining another unit to three is what makes what was potentially four to become actually four. What this amounts to is saying that the additional unit plays the role of form or species in the definition of the number, and that the number to which it is added plays the ro role of matter. St. Thomas makes this point, I think, in his commentary on metaphysics, Book 8, Lexio 3. So just a short quotation from St. Thomas. Uh, uh, quote, a number is one per se, inasmuch as its final unit gives to the number, unit, and species. Just as in things composed of matter and form, a thing is one through its form and takes on its unity and species. So there he's making a comparison between um, in a, a composite thing, a thing composed of matter and form, how the form gives the species and the, the unity to the thing. So in that way, the final unit does that for a given number. Okay, so I know that's a little bit obscure and difficult, and I will say in passing that I do not propose to say how the new unit is added, exactly what it means to add it. Um, again, I think that that perhaps goes beyond the, the scope of the paper, really, and of arithmetic or geometry as such. However much uh, this comes about in the being of the numbers themselves, what the mathematician sees is that three becomes four when another unit is added to it. As a simple example of how this act of joining the last unit determines a new property, just consider how the new unit changes the number from odd to even, right? Three is odd, you add one, it changes its property being even. Um, but also I want you to note how this mode of defining reveals very little about the properties of the number. Um, though it's obvious that the next number after four is odd, we can't see in any easy way that five is the only prime number which is both 
the sum of two primes and the difference between two primes. That's unique to the number five, but <laughs> it's hard to see how, how we would know that just from thinking about the fact that it's the next number after four. The discovery of proofs of theorems like this would be difficult, if not impossible, I think, without the analytic methods of modern mathematics. Uh, but fortunately, this branch of the science, which pursues the characteristic properties of individual species of number, is not what Euclid was concerned with. This is a branch of arithmetic that is as far from geometry as possible. So why have I talked about this? It seems to me this explains why um, uh, the arithmetic that's in Euclid I want to try to say more about this too, why it has a uniquely geometrical character. It's not like number theory in modern math where you're interested in sort of in properties of numbers kind of as individual numbers, but he's about something else. Okay. Um, so if then a specific number is the boundary of an act of accumulating units so that no other kind of definition can be given by us, how do we translate such a definition into something useful for geometry? I think Euclid has a good answer. We reason about numbers by considering them as measuring and measured. The ultimate measure of a number is the unit and its multitude is the distinctive way in which the unit measures it. Now measuring is an act of dividing. The geometer therefore divides numbers and imposes order upon them in order to reveal their properties. Now measure is first known to us in extended things and the things that we can sense. The first notion of measure is of a magnitude laid out along another, alongside another magnitude so that it goes into it a certain number of times. The very name of Euclid science, geometry, that means earth measurement, and that refers to this very procedure. Although there is something arbitrary in measurement, one can begin from either end, for example, right, to measure something, um, there is a comprehensible order of the units from left to right or right to left. Laying down the unit randomly leads to error. It would be an irrational thing to do. You want to measure something, just start putting down the unit randomly. We have to do it in a systematic way, although it doesn't matter which end you begin from. When counting, material ob when counting on the other hand, material objects, we tend to imitate this spatial order by systematically ordering the things themselves in space. There's plenty of evidence that in ancient times, livestock were counted by associating them one by one with notches in a stick. You may have experienced this yourself in grouping pennies in order to count them in groups of five or ten, right? Um, on the other hand, the units in an abstract number are not laid out alongside each other, nor are they visible in the representation of the number by a numeral. Where, after all, are the units in seven? There's no where there, right? And what happens when we subtract one number from another? When we subtract three from seven, we don't think about which of the units in seven are being taken away. Here we see the advantage of representing numbers by divided lines. By ordering the units in space, we give our imagination something to make use of as we go about discovering and proving properties of numbers. Okay. Representing numbers by lines seems then to be an obvious choice, but this was not the only choice Euclid could have made. Another technique was available to him, one which has pr had proved useful to his predecessors. Since the unit is indivisible, it would seem logical to represent it by a point. A number then would be represented by a set of points, since the unit is, as it were, the material from which the number is formed. Does that make sense? So, um, yeah, this approach was, was well known in antiquity. Let me quoting, uh, quoting Aristotle, again from the Metaphysics Book 8, 
chapter 8, he gives this description of the approach. Quote, they, that is, some of the Pythagoreans, conducted their inquiry at the same time from the standpoint of mathematics and from that of universal formulae, so that the, formal, so that the former standpoint they treated, so, sorry, so that from the former standpoint they treated unity, their first principle, as a point. This way of depicting numbers has its uses. When the numbers in question have properties analogous to geometrical properties, this way of depicting them can be helpful for the discovery of theorems. Such, for example, are square, cubic, and triangular numbers. For numbers like these, a visual presentation of their nature is possible by drawing an orderly array of dots. So if you look on your handout, you'll see an example of that. So with this, here's an informal demonstration from this little diagram um, that the summing of successive odd numbers produces the sequence of square numbers. Very interesting little theorem. So you see there's first there's one dot, that's the unit, which is a sort of a degenerate sort of square. Then you add a, you add a gnomon to it, right? You add three to one, that's the next odd number by that gnomon, and that gives you the square of four, which is the square of, square of two, right? Um, and then you add the next number, right, five, and what do you get? Ah, you get nine, right? And the, the diagram sort of shows you wh why this works, right? Why by adding successive odds, you get the squares. So, representing these numbers by arrays of dots can indeed serve the imagination well, well enough when they're appropriate. The diagram is not a formal proof of the theorem, but it's quite convincing, really. Um, this method covers a very small territory in the realm of numbers, however. Symbolizing a number such as seven by a line of dots does not get you anywhere that a line divided into se seven segments won't get you more suitably. Euclid's way has a further, I mean, it's also superior to this other way in that it doesn't give the false impression that seven is nothing more than seven one side by side, as if it had no character and unity of its own. So limited usefulness, somewhat misleading. Euclid's choice of uh, divided lines seems better. <clears throat> so let's now look at the distinctive advantage of visually articulating the parts of numbers, whether units or other divisors, by the use of divided lines. The lines may always be made reasonably short, of a reasonably short length, since any arbitrarily small line can be thought of as a unit. As mentioned above, we are able in this way to grasp the number as a whole containing these parts. Because of the abstractness of the representation, it is not hard to disregard the actual number of divisions in the illustration and to focus on what is essential. In other words, there's no reason to pay attention to the actual count of the divisions as if one were merely calculating. Let's see how this works by looking at Propositions, Book 7, Prop 4, also illustrated on, on your sheet, which proves that any number is either a part or parts of any number, the less or the greater. Okay. Yeah, just to remind you, a number is part of a larger number if it measures it without a remainder, but Euclid calls it parts if there is a remainder. Thus, 3 is a part of 6, but it is parts of 7. In the proof, the larger number is represented by A and the lesser by BC. Although it contains the lesser number, the laying out of BC along A is not necessary. Everything hangs on whether or not A and BC are prime to one another. 
If BC measures A, it is a part and all is well. If it does not measure it, we need only take the greatest common measure of A and BC. It's represented by the line D. BC is shown as divided into parts BE, EF, EC equal to D to show that a part existing in BC is also a part of A. Um, so you see what I mean? It doesn't matter whether he did two, three, four of those parts. It doesn't matter for the proof. Um, so um, this, is show, this is what it means to say that BC is parts of A. It's made up of numbers which are themselves parts of A. So that's all he had to show. So, so I hope that makes sense, that, that you can think about the essentials of it without worrying about exactly how many times he divided the line. The articulation of the lines into parts helps one to understand the reason for the theorem. The fact that BC is shown as divisible into three parts, well, I, I just, that's just what I said, so don't worry about that. To sum up, by representing a number as a divided line, the teacher exhibits its formal character in a sufficiently detailed way, which he could not do by showing it as a numeral. Showing numbers as lines depicts them as quantities relatable to one another, either through one measuring the other or through having some common measure, and in this way, Euclid facilitates our grasp of the truths which he wants to prove about them. Okay. So I hope I've convinced you that the use of lines is a good idea um, and that, it, again, it doesn't imply that numbers or lines or anything like that. Okay. <clears throat> Part two. Why does the elements contain the, new, the number books? Before considering the place of the number books in the elements as a whole, we might ask why are they there at all? Euclid does not tell us why he included them, and I have found nothing in Heath's history or commentaries to shed light on the matter. Since I can't answer the question historically, I can at least point out some advantages of including them. The inclusion of the arithmetical books allows Euclid to show that there's an analogy between the subject matter of geometry and the subject matter of arithmetic by proving comparable properties for numbers and magnitudes, each by means of proper principles. I hope that makes sense to you. It should have, because I'm sure you've talked about it in class. <laughs> Maybe you wrote a paper about it. Sometimes people did. <clears throat> so examples of this abound, but I'll illustrate just one. In 7.13, Euclid proves if four numbers be proportional, they will be proportional alternately. Since 2 is to 4 is 5 is to 10, so 2 is to 5 is 4 is to 10. Okay, good. Um, so this proposition is proved from the definitions in Book 7 of part and parts, when we were just talking about. <clears throat> in 5.16, Euclid has had proven the comparable theorem in geometry. If four magnitudes are proportional, they will also be proportional alternately. This proof rests on the definition of same ratio given at the beginning of Book 5. So Euclid's drawing out of the likenesses as well as the difference between geometrical and arithmetical theorems is, I think, the most important result of including the books on arithmetic at least from a philosophical point of view. And I say this because the relation between number and magnitude was a controversial issue for the Greeks, and I think, in fact, is still a question of some interest. Okay. We moderns are accustomed to the idea that there is a universal mathematics, one which is most properly expressed in symbols. There have been various ideas about how universal mathematics stands with respect to arithmetic and geometry. For Viette, Descartes' pre predecessor in the invention of algebra, some of you know about that. Um, the symbols and the rules for their manipulation are the, same for both are the same for both kinds of mathematics, 
but each requires a distinct process of interpretation and justification. So he, Viet, I think, saw that there is really a, a, a real generic difference between numbers and lines and other magnitudes. Um, but another opinion is that uh, they are unified, arithmetic and geometry are unified by a common subject matter, which might be called quantity as such. A common opinion among the moderns is that mathematics is a branch of logic, so that the symbols themselves are the subject matter. So all these are ideas that we've become accustomed to, um, but they're certainly not Euclid's idea. And uh, again, he shows you how each, each, of the, each, each of the sciences has a, a comparable propositions that are developed out of the proper principles. Um, so uh, most importantly for our purposes uh, of our discussion right now is that the pre-Euclidean uh, opinion was that all quantity is the same kind of, so there's universal math of quantity because all quantities are the same kind of thing because all quantities are commensurable. This Pythagorean understanding would reduce all mathematics to arithmetic. So this is before Euclid, um, nobody knew about incommensurables. They thought everything was commensurable. So really then again, geometry would just be something that you could reduce to arithmetic. Um, but this opinion could no longer be held after the shocking discovery that the side of the square and its diagonal have no common measure. Prior to the scandal of the incommensurable, <laughs> that, that's, you know, people call it as kind of a scandal because it seemed to make what should be so knowable not so knowable to our minds. <laughs> uh, so uh, prior to this, this discovery of the incommensurable, several of the theorems that we find in the first four books of the elements had flawed proofs. They were based on a purely numerical theory of proportion. They had proofs, but they weren't good proofs. And uh, I want to quote Heath on this situation because it's kind of important. <clears throat> After the discovery of this one case of irrationality, which we could call the square root of two, it would be obvious that proportions hitherto proved by means of the numerical theory of proportion, which was inapplicable to incommensurable magnitudes, were only partially proved. Accordingly, pending the discovery of a theory of proportion applicable to incommensurable as well as commensurable magnitudes, there would be an inducement to substitute where possible for proofs employing a theory of proportions, other proofs independent of that theory. This substitution is carried rather far in Euclid books one through four, unquote. Okay, so what Heath is saying is that Euclid, he saw, the, he saw that magnitude and number could not be in the same genus because of the incommensurability. And therefore, he was willing to go back and work out proper proofs proper geometrical proofs of many of those theorems that are in books one through four. So that was one of the great things that Euclid did. Um, so his treatment of number, for whatever he, reason he does it, um, is um, a treatment of something that doesn't really belong to geometry as if geometry was the, su was the, the subject of numbers, uh, su the, the uh, science in which numbers should properly be considered. So in other words, all the demonstrations of the first four books of the U elements are valid now, quite apart from questions about divisibility of a continuum. Um, so this sets these first four books apart from those that follow. Once the universally valid theory of proportion had been established, it is possible to treat the rest of mathematics according to the distinctive principles of the continuous on the one hand and the discrete on the other. Okay.
I'll skip a little bit of this. Um, <laughs> well, here's what I say. I think this might need a little bit of qualification as a second advantage. The first advantage, remember, was that it showed that they were analogous theorems, but not identical theorems uh, of, of arithmetic and geometry. A second advantage of including the number books is that it makes the elements a more complete elementary treatment of mathematics. When we take a look at the contents of this book, uh, these books, we see evidence that Euclid desired to aim at completeness, sometimes maybe even at the expense of good order. I'll say more about that later. Taken together with book 10, the number books give an adequate treatment of the ways in which magnitudes can have ratios to one another. So books seven through nine, commensurable ratios, book 10, magnitudes with, it with uh, all kinds of ratios, including incommensurable ones. Um, all the potentialities of ratio implicit in book five, or rather all those appropriate to beginners in mathematics, are revealed in these books to the students. Okay, so second advantage, more complete. A third advantage is that numbers show up from time to time in geometrical theorems. A most noteworthy example of this is the very last proposition in the elements, book 13, proposition 18, which is, to set out the sides of the five figures, that is the five regular solids, and to compare them to one another. Some of these comparisons involve numerical ratios, as that the square on the diameter of the circle is to the square on the side of the inscribed pyramid as three to two. We learned other truths along the way involving numbers, such as one, uh, book 141, which says that the parallelogram having the same base as a triangle and in the, as in the same parallels is double the triangle. So that's a simple one. Or something as complex as book 12, prop 10, which shows that any cone is a third part of the cylinder which has the same base and the same height. Um, so again, numbers showing up in geometry. We see that solid geometry, which is the most complete geometry of the physical world, brings together the discrete and the continuous in a very profound way. The perfect marriage of arithmetic and geometry, I think, is in the, in the per perfect solid. Okay, so those are some reasons why Euclid might have included. Again, I don't know historically why he did. Uh, so that's all I'm gonna say about that. Part three, uh, the nature of the number books and the order of their propositions. So if we grant then that there are some good reasons for including the number books and the elements, we may still find them to be unsatisfactory in themselves as being disorderly. One would think that a scientific treatment of arithmetic should begin with definitions and postulates and then proceed to the simplest properties of numbers first, followed by more complex ones. Arithmetic pursued in isolation from geometry would look quite different from what we find in Euclid's number books. I've, also, I've already suggested that Euclid treats number in light of the notion of measuring and being measured. This is demonstrated in the way book seven begins. Number is defined as a multitude composed of units and units arise from the unit by way of addition. Multitude arises from the unit by way of addition. Addition is a kind of measuring in the sense of meeting out as when we count out 75 cents per candy bar. This is measuring as composition. But the more common kind of measurement is a process of resolution in which we begin with numbers or magnitude as given and analyze them into equal parts. To account for this kind of measurement, Euclid next defines part. This use of part is not like that in the axiom that states that the whole is greater than the part, because here a part means a part which measures the whole. So these first definitions are closely connected to measurement. 
Uh, and from these basic ideas, Euclid goes on to define two of the most fundamental divisions of numbers into species. Even and odd numbers are distinguished by whether they can be measured by the dyad, or the number two. The notion of measurement is also required for the definition of prime and composite numbers. Primes are measured by the unit alone, while composite numbers have other measures as well. Thus we see that measure is at the very root of number and its division into species. Okay. So um, let's look a little more closely now at some of these divisions. All right. By defining the even and the odd, right after defining part, parts, and multiple, and before prime, etc., Euclid seems to acknowledge the primacy of this division. It is certainly the simplest and the most easily applied to given numbers. Since for every odd there is an even, namely its double, it seems to be the most perfectly symmetrical division of numbers, so in some ways it's the most beautiful. The even and the odd can themselves be divided into subspecies, and that's what Euclid does next. We'll go to the details of that, even times even, and so on, right? Um, next, e Euclid gives the other important division of number, which comprises them all, namely prime and composite. These two divisions are the only ones given by Euclid which comprehend all numbers. Now, he gives some other distinctions, but they don't apply to all numbers, so I won't say anything about them now. Um, it's interesting note, to note that up to now, up to this point, when he's defined these kinds of numbers, Euclid has not defined any of the operations which are taken as fundamental to arithmetic. He assumes both addition and measurement, which is a kind of division, as well known. Later, subtraction will also be assumed. It's interesting, then, that he does define multiplication. Okay. Um, maybe we can say more about that later if you want to talk about that. I'm just going to skip over some of this. Um, anyway, oh, this is interesting. One thing that seemed to me interesting was that Defining multiplication in terms proper to arithmetic, Euclid indicates that his use of geometrical terminology in these definitions is only by way of analogy. I find that interesting because I was told at dinner that some of the freshmen are very much interested in the plane, the plane and solid numbers and so on. Uh, so uh, he goes on. He defines multiplication in the in the arithmetical books. Um, and he, he introduces that geometrical terminology, but I think because of the way he gives the definition, we can see that there's only just an analogy, like say between a square and a square number. Uh, one doesn't really reduce exactly to the other. Okay. Um, it may seem strange. Okay, so now we're to think about the theorems a bit. Um, remember, he defines odd and even before he defines prime and composite, so you might have suspected he'd have theorems about the odd and the even first, but he doesn't do that. And I think if he were interested in pure numbers, like in number theory, he probably would have. But here he's considered, he's concerned more with numbers in comparison to each other. Um, the principal subject of book seven is numerical ratio and proportion. And the first proposition gives the criterion by which two numbers are primed to one another. The second proposition gives the method for finding the greatest common measure of numbers not primed to one another. And that's needed for what follows a series of demonstrations analogous to the propositions about proportional magnitudes in book five, up through the sameness of ratio x equality. So he goes on to present a number of propositions dealing with sameness of ratio that are specific to numbers. Some of them have analogies to geometry, and especially interesting is proposition 16 that defines cross-multiplying. That's comparable to the proposition defined in compounding of ratios that in, in effect defines compound ratio in book six. 
So we see that right from the beginning, Euclid wants to make us aware of the parallels between arithmetic and geometry. The rest of book seven contains more theorems about relatively prime numbers as well about numbers that are simply prime or composite. Um, so um, the fact that he goes on to prove more propositions having to do with ratios um, and the essence of any numerical ratio is contained most simply as he shows in its least terms. I think this is verifying that the subject of the first book, book seven, is numerical ratio and proportion and the treatment of them here is the most elementary treatment. The next two books of geometry, or sorry, of arithmetic present many interesting theorems having for the most part some connection with geometry. The principal subject, I think, of book eight is numbers in continued proportion. These are sequences of numbers in which each one after the first is the geometric mean between the ones prior, one prior and the one posterior to it. Um, so that's interesting because that too, again, is making a connection between what he's doing in the book and geometry because those continued proportions involve uh, the geometric means. So I don't want to say anything more, much more about that book right now. Um, but let's look at book eight, nine. The book nine is the most troublesome, I think. It looks very disorderly, as if it were a kind of catch-all for other interesting theorems. Mm, I think there might be something to that, but we can maybe make some sense of it. It picks up where book eight left off with more propositions about figured numbers, but the point of view is different than in book eight. In the first seven propositions, he's interested in figured numbers. You know what I mean by that, square numbers, cube numbers, and so on. He's interested in those numbers considered in themselves, not in their relation to other numbers. Before they were there in the continued proportion, so you'd have like uh, two is to four is four is to eight, so you have squares and so on. But here he's interested in like the, the square number itself. Uh, this theme is carried on in the next sequence of propositions, which deal with continued proportions starting from the units. He's back to continued proportions. Such a sequence builds up a series of numbers, each of which is the prior one multiplied by the second in the series. Um, so an example, one, three, nine, 27, that's right. One, three, three times three, three times three times three, and so on. So even here, the individual numbers are of interest as being a sequence of successive squares or cubes, or numbers arising from squares and cubes. More proportions relating to this theme follow, eventually leading to theorems in which prime numbers play a part in these proportions. These propositions culminate in an investigation of the conditions in which it is possible to find a third proportional to two given numbers. That is, given numbers A and B, when is there a number X, such as A is to B is B is to X. <coughs> uh, okay, so fine. What happens next, though, leading up to the end of the number of books is puzzling to me. Proposition 20 shows that there's no end to the generation of prime numbers. This complicated and very interesting proposition could have been proved in book seven, but it wasn't. The only rationale I can see for including it here is that book nine has been more closely focused on the properties of given numbers taken in themselves than, was the, than were the first two books. So if there's anything distinctive, it seems to me that's what's going on here. He's looking at more individual numbers. <clears throat> Proposition 20 is followed by some others, 21 through 30, which are elementary and even trivial, having to do with odd and even numbers. I'll bet you proved all those in one day in your class, right? Um, odd plus, you know, even plus even is even, even plus odd is odd, and so on. It's hard to see how these are not out of place, and I'm inclined to doubt that Euclid put them there. I don't see why. 
But if I had to speculate, one possible way to relate these propositions to the ones that come before them in Book 9 is to note that most of them relate, most of those propositions related to the unending production of numbers from other numbers. Like continued proportion. You got numbers, you make more and more and more and more numbers. So same thing with odd and even, right? You add two evens, you get an, another even. <clears throat> so that's all I can figure. So all the kinds of numbers that Euclid has dealt with so far have been shown to be indefinitely many. This is shown explicitly for primes and implicitly for the rest. The continued proportions produce endless series. Similarly, but more obviously, addition produces as many even and odd numbers as we want. Multiplication gives us even, well, I said all that, okay. <clears throat> this brings us to the, I don't like reading a paper, by the way. I'm doing it so I won't take too long, but I'd rather just talk. <laughs> <clears throat> this brings us to the final propositions of book nine, which are 35 and 36. Proposition 36, which requires 35, gives us a way to make perfect numbers. Recall that perfect numbers are those whose factors, when added together, make up the number. The number six is the first of these, since six equals one plus two plus three. And it's interesting that Euclid ends the number books with this difficult construction of perfect numbers, just as he ends the whole work with the construction of perfect solids. I don't think that could be accidental, right? <laughs> Even though perfection means something different with the solids than it does for the numbers, it seems significant that he ends both sequences with something that's called perfect. <clears throat> so. Here, I just want to sum up my account of the order within the number books. So I think first we have the fundamentals of how numbers relate to one another as prime or composite and how they relate to one another in ratio and proportion. Next, we have continued proportions and how they relate to figured numbers, squares, cubes, and so on. Uh, the view shifts from division, that is measurement in, the, in book seven, to multiplication in book eight. Next, we have truths about figured numbers themselves their simple production by multiplication, and their special production in continued proportions beginning from the unit. Next, we have the production of numbers of various kinds culminating in the perfect numbers. Uh, it would be perfect if we knew that there were infinitely many perfect numbers, but we don't know. That's a mystery. Okay, so I'm almost, I'm almost there. <clears throat> So we've talked about uh, why uh, represent numbers by lines, some reasons why you might want to, Euclid might have wanted to include arithmetic in his book on geometry, and some reflections on the order of propositions and the character of the three books of numbers. Finally, I want to talk about uh, the order of the books and the elements as a whole. Um, that is, why the number books are where they are in the book. Um, first, we might ask, to what extent is the order of the elements original to Euclid. Did he originate that order? I'm not going to go through these quotations, but he thinks so. He gives some reasons to think that one of the big contributions that Euclid made was to put uh, many known theorems into a good order and then, of course, add some better proofs and add in some new theorems as well. Um, so um, whether or not Euclid actually did that, I think we should, we should assume that he did without having evidence to the contrary. Um, so let's begin by considering how Euclid structures his treatment of geometry. The subject of geometry is magnitude. Magnitude is divided into extension in one dimension, straight lines, two dimensions, plane figures, and in three dimensions, solid figures. 
This division gives structure to Euclid's work, but not in a simple way. It is not possible to begin with lines and work up to solids, or to begin with solids and work down to lines. Euclid does, of course, begin with lines in one sense, right? Straight lines and circles are postulated, but they appear in Book One only as boundaries or as auxiliary lines within figures. This is not the same thing as the study of the one-dimensional as such. Um, he does make such a study, but it is difficult and has to be deferred. So, can't study the one-dimensional as such first, it's too hard. <clears throat> solid geometry cannot be studied before plane geometry, since the properties of solids can't be known without knowing about their boundaries. Solids are figures most difficult to understand, and perhaps also the most beautiful, so it is fitting as well as necessary that they come last in the work. Plane geometry has to be treated first. So, plane geometry is developed at length in books one through four, and this section ends with the inscribing and circumscribing of regular polygons in and about circles. Very beautiful. In book four, we join together the most perfect plane figures and constructions that are beautiful both to the mind and to the eye. This book brings to completion a distinct part of Euclid's subject, but the treatment of plane figures is far from being completed. Book six deals with the important subject of ratio and proportion in two-dimensional figures. This study demands knowledge of ratio and proportion in a more universal way, so the development of plane geometry is necessarily interrupted by book five. Book six brings to completion the elements of plane geometry. <clears throat> now, book 10 is the only book that deals expressly with lines. It is the science of the one-dimensional carry on as far as Euclid's method allows. I've already said that Euclid could not begin with the science of the one-dimensional, and now I must explain a little bit more why not. Extension, whether in one, two, or three dimensions, serves as the material component of geometry. Science, first of all, considers formal properties of, the subject, of its subject. Since the material causes of a thing are as such unintelligible, they must be made intelligible through form. This is true at every level. Wood, the material of furniture, is known through the formal properties of wood. Elementary particles are known through their form, and the obscurity we find when we try to, to understand them comes from the elusiveness of their forms. Prime matter is known only insofar as it is demanded by generation and corruption. In geometry, too, the forms, which are the shapes, must be understood before we can know the areas and volumes contained by them. Now, so consider how lines can be known. First, we can see that there's a difference between the straight and the curved, and that while there is only one way of being straight, there are infinitely many ways of being curved. Some kinds of curvature are intelligible and some are not, and the geometry is, inter geometry is interested in those that are intelligible. Euclid deals with curved lines only as boundaries of figures, but Apollonius and other ancient geometers began to study curved lines as such. But is there a possibility of studying lines as material, that is, in the way in which we study area and volume? Yes. Euclid begins this study in Book 10 and is able to carry it quite far. That the subject of Book 10 is straight lines in particular and not magnitude in general, as in Book 5, is made clear by the words he uses in enunciating the theorems, just some of them. He, goes, he even goes so far as to posit a common standard by which all such lines can be classified as either rational or irrational. So he comes ever so close to Descartes' idea of introducing a unit into geometry without quite getting there. <clears throat> so um, I hope this makes sense, that to try to understand the one-dimensional itself, 
but not, not as a boundary is, a, is not an easy thing. So we want to see a little bit more why the study of lines is not a good place to begin. Um, every species of magnitude, think about how what we'd have to do to, to study it. Every species of magnitude is divided by the species below it, right? So in plane geometry, a portion of the plane is delimited by lines, straight or curved, producing triangles, circles, and so on. In solid geometry, the three-dimensional continuum is delimited by plane figures and curved surfaces to bring forth cubes, pyramids, spheres, and so on. These figures are often very beautiful and in that they approach more closely to the reality of the world, they seem especially worthy of contemplation. The student of the line, however, has, as it were, a very limited resource. <laughs> the only way to divide a one-dimensional object is to mark off a point or points, to count the divisions, and to look at the ratios of the parts, and perhaps the ratios to other lines that have been set out. That sounds pretty boring on the face of it. <laughs> the amazing thing is that far from being barren of interest, there are such riches to be found in the division of the line that we are far as mathematicians from having discovered them all. It's not evident at first that that'd be true, but in fact, there's a lot, lot of interest to be discovered there. So although the line is the simplest geometrical object, there are good reasons not to treat it first. Pedagogically, it makes sense to treat the more knowable before the less knowable, and whereas commensurable, that is numerical, numerable lines, do seem more knowable than figures, the same cannot be said of incommensurable lines. Books five and 10 make the greatest demands on the student's powers of abstraction. The fact that incommensurables were not known to the earliest geometers point to their obscurity. Perhaps also the fact that the imagination is less vividly engaged when studying lines makes the propositions about them more difficult to learn and remember. Sure, those sophomores and above know what I mean, how it's kind of hard sometimes to, to keep those propositions, those proofs in book 10 in your mind. <clears throat> so although the reasons uh, I've given have some force, the more essential reason um, is really mathematical. To divide or measure lines, it's necessary to carry out constructions in two dimensions. So if you're gonna be able to divide it, you have to have two dimensions available to you. Euclid, for example, bisects a straight line in book one, uh, prop 10, and in book six, nine, he cuts off a prescribed part from a straight line. In the latter proposition, he shows that any straight line may be measured by any number. He even anticipates irrational divisions of lines in book six, prop 13, where he constructs a mean proportional between two lines. These illustrate that in order to measure a line or to show that it cannot be measured by some other line, it is necessary to carry out constructions in the plane. Finally, it's worth mentioning that book 10 includes some applications of proportion to squares and thus implicitly to other rectilineal figures. This is a hint that the division, or rather the distinction between rational and irrational is applicable to all kinds of extension. <clears throat> for all these reasons, it is necessary for Euclid to put, put book 10 after book six. But are there also good reasons not to defer the treatment of straight lines until after solid geometry at the very end of the book? That we should not put book 10 last can be seen in two ways. First, the treatment of incommensurables underlies the argument by approach to a limit and the powerful method of proof by double reductio. Using the latter, Euclid is able to establish the important theorems that circles are in the duplicate ratios of their diameters and, and spheres in the triplicate ratio of the same. Thus, the treatment of the irrational as well as of the rational are made to serve the purposes of solid geometry. Second, the perfect solids are clearly meant to be the climax of the whole book of the elements. 
That there are only five of these is a source of great wonder. The plane figures which bound these figures involve both simple numerical ratios um, and, irrational, and irrational ratios. This could not be known without Book 10. For these reasons alone, it is right for Book 10 to come before Book 11, the first book on solids. Okay, to sum up the order I've justified so far, plane geometry in books one through four, uh, with two being a tool, really. Uh, proportion in magnitude generally in book five, and then in plane figures in book six. Rational and irrational lines in book 10. Solid geometry in books 11 through 13. All that's missing from this picture are the number books. Where do they fit in? First, we can see the number books as belonging to the study of ratio and proportion since this is implied in the understanding of number through measurement. Since arithmetic is easier than geometry and prior to it, one might wonder why Euclid does not put these books right before book five, so that ratio and proportion are treated first in number and then in magnitude. A simple answer might be that this would be unnecessarily to interrupt his treatment of plane figures. Another possibility, which would avoid this problem, would have been to begin the entire uh, work with the book on number, books on number. After all, the theorems in this part are independent of the geometrical theorems, and starting with arithmetic would have some advantages. Numbers are better known and more accessible to the students than magnitudes. Also, separating off the treatment of multitude from that of magnitude would reinforce the idea that arithmetic is not simply reducible to geometry, but a science in its own right. <clears throat> Despite the fact that arithmetic is an independent science, the number of books do not stand alone in their elements as pure arithmetic. I think this must be seen as integral to Euclid's approach to geometry. I've spoken at length about how Euclid considers number by means of the idea of measurement. Now, that's, this is not the only possible way to conceive them. For instance, Richard Dedekin writes, quote, I regard the whole arith of arithmetic as the necessary, or at least natural, consequence of the, simple the simplest arithmetical act, that of counting. And counting itself is nothing else than the successive creation of the infinite series of positive integers in which each individual is defined by the one immediately preceding. So starting with addition rather than with measurement could form the basis of a work on arithmetic and no doubt is the best way to go about treating the art of calculation. But Euclid is not interested in calculation and Dedekind's way of developing a science of arithmetic departs from the path of the ancients. Euclid seems not to have been very much interested in the kind of arithmetic one finds in Nicomachus and other ancient writers on the subject either. For Euclid, the path to a scientific treatment of arithmetic passes through geometry. So seeing the number books in the context of geometry allows us to understand the placement of the number books. The reason for placing them between six and 10 cannot be necessity since they are independent of the rest. If necessity is not the reason, he must have seen it as appropriate to place them where he does, right before book 10. This idea is supported by the character of the first few propositions in book 10. A careful look reveals some parallels between how book seven, books seven and 10 begin. Proposition, 10, uh, proposition book 10 number one has no equivalent in the number books, but proposition two parallels book seven, proposition one. So here's seven one. Two num two I think it's on your sheet. Two unequal numbers being set out, the less being continually subtracted in turn from the greater. If the number which is left never measures the one before it until a unit is left, the numbers will be primed to one another. Now compare this to 10 two. If when the less of two unequal magnitudes is continually subtracted in turn from the greater, 
that which is left never measures the one before it, the magnitudes will be incommensurable. This proposition reveals the distinctive character of magnitude as opposed to multitude. Um, but Euclid goes on to make explicit how the multitude can exist in magnitude. Propositions 3 and 4 exactly uh, in book 10 exactly parallel 7, 2, and 3 by finding the common measure of 2 and 3 commensurable magnitudes respectively. Propositions 5 through 8 nail down the difference between commensurable magnitudes and numbers. He shows that commensurable magnitudes have the ratio of a number to a number and conversely and that incommensurable magnitudes do not have the ratio of a number to a number, and conversely. So, from these considerations, we may infer that Euclid wanted us to think about number and magnitude in contrast and comparison to one another. The number books should not be thought of as standing on their own as an independent treatment of arithmetic randomly asserted into a book of geometry. By looking first at number as manifest in lines, and then at lines where numbers fail to cover all the, po the possibilities, Euclid manifests the necessity to go beyond the flawed geometry of his predecessors to a more complete science of magnitude and figure. So that, um, that concludes my account. Um, if um, I, Maybe I could just summarize briefly again what I'm saying about the order of all the books. So book one deals with rectilineal figures. It's the foundation of all the rest. Book two gives analytical tools for the books to follow. Book three deals with properties of circles, the simplest figures after the straight lines, and next in the order of learning. Uh, this, it presupposes book one. The, um, book four beautifully brings together what was in um, the, um, the regular polygons, of which the square and the equilateral triangle have been most perfect, with the circle by inscribing and circumscribing. Book five teaches the fundamental theorems about ratio and proportion and magnitude. And this doctrine is applied in book six to reveal many important and beautiful theorems about plane figures. Seven through nine treat, treat of numbers um, through uh, commensurable divisions of, of magnitude of the line, while book 10 deals comprehensively as much as was possible for Euclid with lines both rational and irrational. Book 11 presents the most fundamental theorems about constructions in three dimensions, the solids formed by planes, Book 12 deals with solids based upon the circle and the ratios of volumes and found in various kinds of solids. Finally, book three constructs the five regular solids within a sphere and considers the ratio of their sides to one another, some of which can be expressed in numbers and some not. Euclid shows that the regular solids draw together the rational and the irrational, number and that which cannot be numbered. In this way, he brings the elementary study of geometry to a beautiful and fitting conclusion. Thank you.